Well, amen. We are in week four of our tough sayings of Jesus. We're almost there. Jesus has told us that we are to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He's told us in home groups that we're to cut off our hands and our eyes, gouge out our eyes if they offend us. He's told us that we should hate our father, mother, wife, children, even our own self. He's told us in home groups to put ourselves at odds willfully with loved ones, especially when it matters for eternity. This past Sunday, we talked about how God has called us to forgive someone an infinite number of times. There is no limit to the forgiveness that we should show others. And then we took it a step further. Jesus took it a step further in our home groups this past week. We talked about not only should we forgive, but we're to turn the other cheek and go out of our way to serve those who would want to take advantage of us. The ones who approach us with ill motives, to take advantage of us, we are to put ourselves to their advantage. Jesus has told us some really difficult things, and he, we're not stopping there. In fact, between today and a week from today, we will hear three more things that Jesus tells us that are just hard to do. They're hard in our minds and our hearts to wrap in our flesh to wrap around what he's saying. And today is no different. You see, Jesus is not in the business of accumulating fans. There, though there were fans around Jesus in his ministry, he wasn't in the business of accumulating fans. He was refining a group of committed followers. What is a follower? A follower is someone who follows, who does, who acts out what they see as their example. And so listen to Luke 18, verse 22. You can turn there in your Bibles. It's our primary text for today. Luke 18, beginning in verse 22. We hear some things that sound nearly impossible, and he says in verse 22, this is Jesus speaking, letters in red. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Remember what the Jews asked. What's the least that we can possibly do to accomplish righteousness, to achieve eternal life. What does Jesus tell them here? Well, all that you have to do is give all that you have. Give everything that you have and you can be my disciple. Listen to verses 24 and 25. Jesus explaining what he said says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter 
the kingdom of God. Father, give us discernment and understanding today. We recognize that these are hard sayings, difficult to understand, necessary to understand in the context that they were written, not just the scriptural context, but the historical context of the day. But God, let us come to truth. And Lord, this is not new truth. This truth is as old as time, as old as you. But God, as you illuminate truth new to us today, God, may we live in light of that. Your word is truth. Sanctify us in truth today would be our prayer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All you got to do to follow Jesus is get rid of everything. Get rid of everything and then follow Jesus. It's easier for a rich man, for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. When we read verses like this, we, we are inclined to think, man, God has it out for rich people. Like God has something majorly wrong and against people that have means and resources. But what we will determine as we begin to look at this, as we see it in the context it was written, the man who it was written, who it was spoken to, who it was Jesus as he provided clarification afterwards, after his encounter with this man, we're going to see that the problem is not the stuff. The problem runs deeper than that. So let's look first at the ruler. This is the story of the rich young ruler. Now you kind of have to splice together a bunch of gospel accounts to remember and to realize that this guy, one account tells us he was young. One account tells us he was rich, and another account tells us he was a ruler. Rich young ruler, okay? And so this is where we derive this. And so this rich young ruler, we see the encounter in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. All right, so let's look at the ruler for just a moment in verse 18. And the ruler asked him, excuse me, I'm so sorry, yeah. And the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? worthwhile question, right? As a matter of fact, I can remember as a kid growing up, even before I understood what it meant for Jesus to be my Lord, I understood that I didn't want to go to hell, right? I wanted eternal life. And so I knew Jesus was the ticket for that, right? And so this young man is asking a noble enough question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him in verse 19, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Put your finger there. We'll be back. You know the commandments, Jesus said. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he, the man, said to him, all of these I have kept from my youth. Now, some people believe that this was a statement of ultimate pride, that he was saying he was perfect. I don't necessarily believe that. I believe he was probably saying, listen, as far as Jewish standards are concerned, I'm doing really well. Like, I am, I am doing my best to abide by all of these commandments. I know them, I understand them, and I'm doing everything I can. When I transgress them, I make a sacrifice. Like, I'm doing everything I can to abide by the law. And so this is what he says. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, just one. I don't know about you, Pat, but if 
I could get down to one thing I lack. To be in a perfect obedience to God, that sounds pretty slick to me, right? That sounds great. I've made some progress. There's one thing you lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. As I studied the scripture, there are over 18 personal encounters with Jesus in the Gospels. 18 encounters of personal things that Jesus does for people, usually in the form of healings, 18 personal encounters. In every one of those encounters, the people leave better than they were before. To the blind man who would encounter Jesus, he would receive his sight. To the lame man, he would receive strength in his legs to walk. To the dumb, they would speak. To the demon-possessed, they would be that demons would be exercised out. To the dead, they would be made alive again. Over 18 encounters, personal encounters, and that doesn't even touch all of the people that it says that he healed many and many came to him with diseases and afflictions. But personal encounters, over 18, every person had an encounter with Jesus and they left better than they came. This is the only account of a man having a personal encounter with Jesus leaving worse than he was before. The man came with hope. The Bible says he was, he was definitely, uh, he had a desire to see Jesus. In other accounts, it tells us that he ran to Jesus and he knelt, right? He, he was humbled before him and he ran to him. He had some things right and he was, he was definitely desiring for God to, for Jesus to teach him. Good teacher, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What he realized is something was missing in his life. Something was missing. He had everything that the world would call important. He had fame. He had popularity. He had youth. He was a rich, young ruler. If anybody didn't need Jesus that day, it was the rich, young ruler. But the rich, young ruler recognized he had a need. And he responded out of desire. He came with hope that Jesus would give him the missing piece. And what did, we, what did he say? This one thing you lack, this one piece you're missing. The man left hopeless. He came with hope and he left hopeless because he was not willing to give up his riches. We don't just see the man's desire, we see the man's devotion, right? This man did the right things. This man lived as a Jew as close to perfection as you could. In his own mind and in his heart, he did everything that he could. He abided by the law. He made sacrifices. Listen, that was no small feat. It took effort to live a, God, a, a spiritually religious life as a Jew. 
And anybody that would look at him, anybody that would see him, listen, this is the type of guy that we would make a deacon at our church, right? This is a guy we would put in leadership heading up a ministry team. This is a guy we would have leading a home group because this guy looked the part. But he was missing something. Despite his desire, despite his devotion, he had a disconnect. There is a disconnect between him and Jesus. And if we're not careful, we'll look at this text and go, well, the problem was he was too rich. God doesn't like rich people. He was too rich. There you go. That's the problem. But the problem goes far deeper than that. When we read this, we immediately think that the man's problem was his wealth. But Jesus identifies that the problem was with his heart. The passage of scripture I told you to put your finger on, let's go back. Jesus says something here that seems out of place. It seems like he's just being contrary. It seems like he's just being difficult. Do you ever know those people that you just start a conversation, they just say things just to be difficult, like just to get on your nerves a little bit? Like people just do that. Like husbands do it to their wives all the time. I already see wives looking at husbands. So like I know that happens, right? And so sometimes we just know how to push each other's buttons and we just do it because it's kind of fun, right? And so it sounds like Jesus is just being contrary. What does he say there? He says, good teacher, right? He's asking this great question. I'm waiting for this one hole in my life to be filled. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Nobody's good but God. Now, Jesus is not saying he's not God. He's not telling him, hey, take back the good part. What he's saying is, you need to understand in calling me good exactly who I am. He is challenging this young man's understanding of who God is. Don't call me good teacher. The biggest lie you can believe about Jesus and his existence on this earth is that he was just a great teacher. Because someone who is a liar, who builds their whole, their whole teaching based in a lie that he is the son of God, is not a good teacher. Someone who is off of his rocker and has delusions of grandeur that he is the Messiah of the world is not a good teacher. You can't say Jesus is just a good teacher. No one is good but God alone. So he's either a liar. Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or a Lord or the Lord, right? We, we know Cahill's description there. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is who he says What Jesus is identifying here is the crux of the whole problem. If the rich young ruler would have come to Jesus, not looking for the missing piece in his life to make him feel better, but came to him as the Lord and Savior of the world, his needs would have been met. And anything that was required after that fact would have been reasonable service would have been reasonable acts because God had saved him from an eternity in hell. Had he been convinced that he was the son of God, had the rich young ruler been convinced that Jesus was the son of God, then he would have followed him willingly. He would have done whatever was required. He would have done what the disciples did. He would have done what others have done, what we have done. He would, he would have done that willfully. Why? Nobody is good but God. 
And God is good. And Jesus is God. Therefore, whatever he asks of me is good. But instead, we blame his resources. We blame his riches and say, well, the problem is he just had too much money. What we need to understand in your notes is everyone follows a God. Everyone. The most devout atheist in the world follows a God. Now, they may not find that God in a deistic realm. They may not identify it as God, but a God is simply whatever we willfully submit ourselves in authority to submit to their authority over our lives. Anything that we submit to that we place as authority in our lives is a God for us. Anything that can call the shots in our life is a God for us. We all follow God, follow gods. This young man, this rich young ruler had a God in his life. The problem was not his riches. The problem was his heart. His heart was pursuing a God that was not the one true God. It was not Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus, knowing this, knowing this condition of his heart, asked him to give up the thing that had absolute authority in his life. And I don't know what riches in this world look like to you. I'll tell you this, not everybody in this room sees them as silver and gold. Some of them see it as power. Some of them may see it as relationships. Some of them may see it as popularity. Some of them may see it as respect. I don't know what you consider riches in this world, but all of us are prone to wonder. And when we wonder, we are following other gods. We all follow gods. Regardless of how we desire to live our life free of outside influence in our flesh, we are always serving. It's why Jesus, like Jesus tells them, right? Whoever commits sin is a slave, is a slave to that sin, right? We are enslaved to our sin nature. We all follow gods. He was speaking to the idol worship in this man's life. Had the young man, had the young ruler had faith in Jesus as God, he would not have had a problem with forsaking all and following him. He would, if, he would have, if he would have understood that Jesus was God, he would have trusted in the provider over the provision, over the things that had been provided that he would have probably said before this conversation was given to him by God. He would have trusted in the one who provided it through his son, Jesus. To believe in Jesus as God is to truly recognize that all of your needs are met. All of our needs are taken care of in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is more than enough. So yesterday, Hudson, my middle kid, who is a middle kid in every sense of the word, uh, look it up in the dictionary. It is my kid's picture. My middle kid had his seventh birthday. And when we asked him where he wanted to go with his family, we, were just, we, had some, we have some other plans later on but uh, with friends, but we wanted family to be able to, to come and all that kind of stuff. And so we asked him, where do you, what do you want to do? You wanna go eat? Where do you want to go eat? And he said in his Hudson vernacular, to the place that they cook in front of you. That's what he wanted. That place where they cook in front of you. And so we said, all right, buddy. We knew exactly what that meant. That meant hibachi, 
right? So we go to Abachi with grandparents, and, and we get there, and man, my son is super excited. He's already got his present from some of his grandparents, and man, he is loving life. He is about to get some of that rice. Lord, help me, that fried rice at the Hibachi restaurant. He is super excited. And so I, as a responsible adult, look at the menu. I find what I'm going to get, and then I tell my sons, hey, boys, you can get the kids' hibachi chicken, the kids' hibachi steak, or the kids' hibachi shrimp. And that's about it. You would have thought I had lopped a limb off of my middle son. Hudson said, Daddy, it is my buff day. You can't, I, I, I need a grown-up meal. They're in this stage now where you can't tell them to order off the kids' menu without them getting deeply offended. Here's the problem. I've been to that restaurant, and I know how much food they put on your plate, whether you're a kid or not. There's a reason why it says if you're older than this, you can't, because it's the exact same portion size. Exact same, you just get it for cheaper. And so I'm knowing this, say, son, listen, you don't, don't listen, d- just get it. I promise you won't eat it. And he says... I bet you five dollars I eat it all. <laughs> Hudson, where are you gonna get that five dollars? You know what? I know you're playing with house money here, kid, but I, I'm so confident that I know the capacity of your stomach and the capacity of your eyeballs that I will bet you that $5 that I will give myself, or I will give you, I will give you $5 if you can eat all of your kids' menu. If you can eat all of your hibachi chicken, I will give you $5. Guess what didn't, I didn't have to do to Hudson last night. I didn't have to give him that $5 because he was stuck with a ton of rice on his plate and everything else, right? Because I, as his father, knew that a kid's menu was enough. I think about that in my relationship with Christ. How many times I'm wanting to order something off the grown-up Christian menu, and he knows what is enough for me. I'm wanting to see this happen in my life. I'm wanting to see this domino fall. I'm wanting to see this promotion. I'm wanting to see this relationship go this direction. And all along, God is looking at us saying, no, son, daughter, I know what you need. And what I have for you is more than enough. It's enough. The problem is not that God is not enough for us. As is made evident by the rich young ruler, the problem is God doesn't have enough of us. It's not that God isn't enough. He said he doesn't have enough of us to meet all of our needs. We still play in this middle ground between the world and the spirit, and we, we, we feel like we're in conflict, but we feel like that's okay, right? And All along, like this rich young ruler, he's saying, listen, Sever the ties, get away from the world. Sell all that you have, get rid of this thing that is separating me from you. Maybe that looks like money. Maybe that looks like time. Maybe that looks like internet access. Maybe that looks like a relationship. Students, get rid of it and follow me. 
It's not that God isn't enough, but rather that he does not have enough of us. Secondly, let's look at the ruling. The rich young ruler is sad and he walks away. So Jesus gives his disciples a teaching moment. Listen to his ruling here in verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What's he saying? It's impossible. No, no many camels passing through eyes of needles. Safe to assume? That's impossible. He is using hyperbole, stating a, a statement of an impossibility. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. And all of those that heard it said, then who can be saved? There's exasperation in their voice. But he said to them, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What Jesus is teaching them in this ruling is he's, he's teaching a lesson to the poor. You see, when you were poor in Jesus' day, that meant that you didn't have anything that was your own. You didn't have anything that was your own, and if you wanted anything that you could call yours, you had to go and sell yourself to a person that had plenty, a person, a rich man who had a lot of land, would sell you a small portion of land where you could put a small hut for your family and you could cultivate some for your family, but ultimately you would be working your whole life to return the debt of this small land that this person allowed you to have. And so those poor was, were completely dependent upon the rich. It was an indentured servitude, and some of them spent their whole life trying to pay back the initial debt that they had so that they could survive. And so they were completely, the poor were completely dependent on the, re, on the rich to meet most all of their physical Needs And so to them who were listening, to the poor that were listening, they'd have been rocked. Because listen, this is the young man, the rich young man that had it all. Not just had it all, but like I've seen him reading his Bible. Like I've seen him doing the right things. I've seen him going to church. I've seen him talking to people about God. Like I've seen this guy doing good things. He's treated me well as a servant. This guy's got it all together. And if he can't get in, what hope is there for me? How can anybody be saved if this guy can't be saved? What Jesus tells them is, it's impossible with man. You continue to look at man as your example, your standard of living, you will continue to fall short of salvation. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. But with God, all things are possible. What's he doing? He's taking the poor and he's saying, redirect all the attention that you have on the rich to provide for you and direct it on to me. Put it on me. Trust me to provide. It is all possible. Inheriting the kingdom of God is impossible for the rich and it's impossible for you unless you will put your faith, confidence, and trust in me. This is what he's telling them, right? So for the poor, quit, quit looking at the rich for your provision and look to me. For the rich here, what he's saying is, listen, it doesn't matter what you accumulate in this world. He's refocusing their attention on God, not their wealth. 
It says plenty other places, right, that, that wealth is, is fickle and it's fleeting and it doesn't last. Don't put your confidence in these things. What he says is, rather, with God, it's possible. Are you willing to submit everything that you have to the lordship of God? Do you know why the rich struggle to inherit the kingdom of God? Those rich in money, those rich in fame, those rich in popularity, those rich in prosperity. Why it's difficult? Because there's more that they have to submit into the lordship of Christ. God wants all of them just like he wants all of the poor. And it's easier to give up things when you don't have a lot to give up. But when you start getting a lot of things, a lot of stuff that are blessings from God, it's that much more difficult to continually lay them down at his feet. The easier option would be to take what you have and provide for yourself because you can. That works in this life. It does not work in the life to come. So this is what Jesus is telling the rich is refocus your priorities off of these riches, this God in your life that you have pursued. And let me tell you, you don't have to be rich to make riches your God, right? You can be, you can be this poor, the poorest of the poor and make riches your God. But if you make these things your God, then you won't understand the goodness that I offer through a relationship with me. No one is good but God alone. Those rich by the world's standards must fight to be poor in spirit. What does Matthew 5 tell us? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. You know what that means? The only way we come to Christ is when we ourselves recognize us for who we are. We are bankrupt when it comes to what we have to offer Jesus. We don't have wealth, we don't have fame, we don't have popularity, the things that the world calls riches, we don't have. But we lay it all down, and when we lay it down, whether it's a lot or a little, whether it is fortune or it is the widow's might, when we lay it down, when we are poor in spirit, ours is the kingdom of God. That's what he means when he says, with God, without God, it's not, it's, it's impossible. With man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. With man, it is impossible. But with man, it, but it is possible with God. So this is what he's explaining, is that temporary treasures, in your notes, temporary treasures often impede an eternal perspective. You want to live a godly life. But man, when we have so much invested in this world, and we put stock in it, and we put ourselves under its authority, man, we miss living life the way God has intended. So I have an object lesson. Sarah, tell Noe I have her a balloon today. Um, this balloon is representative of us. And for us to live a godly life, the desire to do right, the desire to do good, most people would agree that this is, this is the intent of our life. We want to bring honor and glory to God. And even people in this room want to bring glory to God, but when we... Try to do that if we have investment in this world. 
If there's things that we have failed to surrender, though we desire to be where God is, we find ourselves time and time again falling short. And so I don't know what this looks like to you. I don't know what riches, what treasure in the world this looks like to you. I don't know if it's that promotion. I don't know if it's that job change. I don't know if it's uh, that relationship in your life, that boyfriend or girlfriend that you, you care about and you love each other. But I'm going to tell you the things that you're doing don't prove love. They prove love's absence. And regardless of trying to live a godly life, time and time again, the things in our world drag us, anchor us into it. And so what we find ourselves doing is living in this in-between Right? We find ourselves trying to live one foot in the world and one foot in the church, right? And we try to, we try to be two people at once. We live in this in between and we just look silly. And what Jesus is saying is, look, rich young ruler, I don't care how much you have. The only way that you are to live the life as I intended is if you cut all ties, quit looking to the world to meet a need that only I can meet. This is what it means to live a life for the gospel. This is what we've studied in all of the difficult sayings. The gospel is greater. The message of the gospel, what Christ intends for our life, is greater than what we can accomplish on our own power. So let's look thirdly and finally at the rule. Luke 18, 28 through 30. And Peter said, see... Hearing all this, seeing this man who wouldn't give up everything, Peter wants to make sure Jesus recognizes him. Peter says, see, we have left homes and followed you. Peter said, hey, look, God, look, Jesus, this is is what you said we needed to do. This is what we've done. We've left everything and we followed you. In verse 29, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more times. Say that together. Many more times. One more time. Many more times. In this time, which that's important to understand, God's not some cosmic killjoy that's meant for, to kill all your fun, all your partying, all your, all your good times in this earth, right? But rather to give you fulfillment. And so it's for this time and in the age to come, eternal life. What did the rich man ask? Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus leave his disciples with? Eternal life. So here's the rule. Right? This is, this is the takeaway. This is the universal truth. Only those willing to give all that they have for Christ will receive all that Christ has for them. Only those that are surrendered, that are willing to surrender all, will receive everything that Christ has for them. We know what 1 Timothy 6 10 tells us. You may not know the reference, but I bet you know the verse. The root of all evil is the love of money. We know that verse. We know 1 Timothy 6.10. Do you know what God does? He doesn't leave us 
with just this gaping void in our life, this hole in our life. Instead, what he says is, look, if you find yourself in riches, if you find yourself in treasures, there's something you can do with it. Look at 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. It should be on your notes as well. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Write the reference down because this is good. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Right, Not to think that they can supply for themselves, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. It's not wise, but on God. So the rich shouldn't set their hopes and their desires and their life on the riches, but they should set it on God, who richly provides us everything with a, uh, provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Man, to the world's standpoint, the rich young ruler was living his best life. He had everything you could ever want. What Jesus is saying, true life. Your true best life is not lived with things that you can provide yourself, but only what I can provide for you. And so when we find ourselves in a place with riches, in a place of influence, in a place of rela- with relationships with others, in a place with family connection, when we find ourselves in that place, instead of, Instead of hoarding those and doing what we can to keep those to ourselves, we start wondering and figuring out how we can leverage those things for the glory of God. And so for those that are rich, you better know what to do with it. You better be able to give generously. You better not trust the riches that that you can lose in this world. You better put your confidence and trust in God. If you are to receive a lot, you better be mature enough not to make it your God or any other thing that can distract us from what God has called us to live the Christian life. It's found in Christ alone. I want to end with a a quote from A.W. Tozer. Our best life is not found in things of this world. And listen what A.W. Tozer says. Those who seek the deeper Christian life And those who want the riches that are in Christ Jesus the Lord seek no place. They seek no destination. They seek no future plan. They seek no wealth. They seek no things. Only Christ. Only Christ. Is what you seek in this life only Christ? This is what it means to make him the Lord of our life. Now in a moment we can be silly and we can be dumb and we can rip him off the throne of our life and put ourselves for a time. But when we do that, that should bother us. It should really affect us. We should be in turmoil because God has called us to live a life pleasing to him and that is only done when we disconnect ourselves from the way to this world. What do you seek? I have quoted this verse a hundred times in the time that I've been pastor here. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What do you seek? 
If it's not God, it's never, even if you find it, it'll never satisfy. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? As we enter in a time of invitation, I don't know what you seek. I don't know what you've, how you live your life. Truthfully, I don't care. What I want you to know is the life that Christ offers you is greater. It's more powerful. It's stronger. It has more purpose and meaning. And if you're here and you desire a relationship with Christ, it doesn't come from praying a prayer. It doesn't come from walking an aisle. It comes from accepting him as your Lord and Savior. Laying down what you have to follow him. To live your life with open hands. For God to use whatever resources you have at his kingdom disposal. And in return, he gives you what is truly life. 1 Timothy 6, 17. This is truly So if you want to respond to that and you want true life today, it's found in a relationship with Christ. And if you're here and you, there's never been a time in your life where you have surrendered yourself to his lordship and you have, you have accepted his free gift of forgiveness, then I would encourage you to make that decision today, even today, that you could come. When I say amen, find this center aisle, come talk to me. We've got counselors who would love to talk to you about how you can know that you have a relationship with Jesus. Or maybe you need to make any other host of decisions. Maybe God's leading you to join what we're doing here as a church. Maybe God's leading you to baptism. You need to get your life aligned where it needs to be with him and his will for your life. Whatever the case may be, maybe you just need to come to this altar and lay some things down. And you've been pursuing God's little G for a long time. Don't live in that in-between any longer. Trust him to meet your needs. Father, have your will and way in this place. Pray for salvation to come to those that need you as Lord and Savior. I pray for realignment, rededication, for repentance to be the theme of your invitation today as you are inviting us to respond to your goodness and your truth. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you do for us. Have your will and way in this time of invitation. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand to your feet as we sing? Would you come? Whatever decision needs to be made, would you come? You can do business here at the altar. It's, this is your time to respond as the Spirit leads.